0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. On today's podcast, I once again have a very special guest. I know you guys are tired of hearing me say that week after week, but you know what? This really is a very special guest. Professor Richard Thaler of the University of Chicago, perhaps best known as the father of behavioral economics. When you look at his body of work, when you look at the impact he's had, uh, Professor Thaler on the perennial shortlist for a Nobel Prize in, in economics. What um, I think you'll find so fascinating about him is not just that he's incredibly intelligent and unbelievably knowledgeable about how human behavior in the world of economics differs so much from traditional economic theory, but you'll find he's somewhat. Uh, Somewhat mischievous and and very amusing and not your typical dry academic and certainly not your typical dry uh, economist. Uh, His background is is really the very, very early days of behavioral economics. His early mentors were people like uh, Danny Kahneman and and Amos Tversky. Uh, He's worked with Bob Schiller for many, many years. For 25 years, they've been co-chairs of an NBER um, panel on behavioral economics, and just anybody who's been pursuing this field is certainly familiar with his work, starting with um, a a lot of anomalies that he's identified in the world of economics, including his book, The Winner's Curse, from so long ago. He did a book with Cass Sunstein called Nudge that's been very influential, and currently he's out promoting his latest book, called Misbehaving, which really is a mix of his own autobiography, which, of course, paralleled the rise of behavioral economics over the past, let's call it 40 or 50 years. And a quick funny story, after we finished the interview, he had a head somewhere else downtown, and so I walked with him down to his hotel. We walked down Lexington Avenue, and let me tell you, walking through the streets of Manhattan with... uh, Richard Thaler is really quite fascinating because there's a running commentary on everything that's going on, and, and it's quite amusing and quite interesting. And he said something that was really—has uh, stayed with me. It was very interesting. D- during the interview, you'll hear her, hear him discuss— how traditional economic theory works really well for the small, insignificant decisions we make over and over again, that we get good at, what spaghetti sauce to buy in the supermarket, you know, where to fill up our cars with gas, things like that, that, let's be honest, in the scheme of things, are not very consequential. But he also talks about how the big decisions you make in life, you don't get to make that often. You don't get to be that good at making the decisions that really matter, you don't have a lot of experience with them. His examples were: you choose what field you go into, where you work, saving for retirement, who and how often you get married, who you're going to marry to, and I was uh, who you're going to get married to, and how often you end up uh, getting married or remarried, and and the big decisions, the ones that really impact your life. You do once or twice uh, or maybe a handful of times, so you don't get a lot of experience. You don't get a lot of skill at it. It's something that you hopefully make a, a right decision, and if you don't, the consequences are, are really significant. And so as we're walking down Lexington Avenue in New York City, I start talking about that, and I jokingly say to him, hey, you know that thing about you know how many wives you have and the impact it has? On, on your life is is kind of interesting. My secret was to marry my second wife first. Just skip the whole first marriage, the whole disastrous first marriage, go right to the second marriage. And he laughed, and then he said something that has stayed with me since we did the interview. It's really very, very interesting. He said, you can never be happier than your spouse is. And look, we've all heard the expression, happy wife happy life, but stop and think of it in that sort of behavioral terms, that the ceiling on your own personal happiness is a function of whatever your spouse's happiness is. And when you put it into that context, it certainly makes it clear that, hey, if you make your significant other happy, it's going to come back and ultimately raise the ceiling for how happy you yourself can be. But lots of other comments and phrases like that where he is just looking at it slightly as scan, slightly differently than you might consider, and it leads to a lot of insights. So I found him to be absolutely fascinating. I wish I could have kept him there for another hour. Um, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Richard Thaler. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Once again, I have a fantastic and special guest. His name is Dr. Richard Thaler. He has been called the father of behavioral finance, and I'm just going to give a short version of your curriculum vitae, bachelor's degree from Case Western, and then a master's and PhD from the University of Rochester. Dr. Thaler is the author of over 50 published papers and numerous books most notably, The Winner's Curse, Nudge, and Misbehaving. Professor Thaler, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thanks, Barry. Happy to be here.
0: I'm leaving out half of your CV. We'll save that for, uh, for, for later. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you find your way to academia?
1: Uh, I went into academia because I didn't think I was suitable for anything else. Uh, that's literally true. My father was an actuary, mm-hmm. and it was a great disappointment to him that I didn't follow into his footsteps. But I saw him. I uh, grew up in Jersey, worked at Prudential. I saw him taking the training every day. and
0: being, Not for you.
1: Not for me. And um, the world's worst subordinate. So academia seemed like a good choice. And, you know, I was kind of good in math and kind of good in economics, so I went into economics.
0: So you start out as a was it a graduate student at Stanford or right after being no, a graduate student?
1: Uh, yeah, a- after being graduate student and uh, and teaching for a couple of years is the Stanford uh, episode. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you had some really influential mentors
1: yeah i I claim to have discovered Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky <laughs> right uh, uh in the same sense in which Columbus discovered America right I mean it was here
0: it came to uh, as a surprise to the people who were living here at the time yeah so
1: uh Kahneman and Tversky came to uh, as a surprise to economists right so uh I I claim to be the first economist who discovered them and I had been interested in weird stuff people do, weird from the perspective of economists. So economists have this creature they study that comes with the Latin term homo economicus. I just like calling them econs.
0: Economic man.
1: Economic man, or we should say, economic person. Okay. Come on, Barry. We have well, to be, you know, twenty first century.
0: You work in a academia, so you have to be more politically correct. Yeah,
1: right. So economic person, but I call them econs, mm-hmm. and econs are as smart as the smartest economist, mm-hmm. or possibly even as smart as the smartest economist thinks he is.
0: Okay, which is much smarter. Which is much smarter, right? Which is
1: really, really smart. (laughs) Um, They have perfect willpower. Mm -hmm. Never have to diet because they weigh exactly the right amount. No hangovers. Uh, Saving for retirement, piece of cake. They calculate how much they need, how much they're going to earn on their investments. Implement. So, needless to say, oh. One other thing, they're jerks. <laughs> so th- these uh, 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 rational economic men will, uh, you know, I left my cell phone outside the door to charge. If an econ walked by, he would it, take
0: it. He would take it. So So let me throw a quote of yours to put this succinctly. Conventional economics assumes that people are highly rational, in fact, super rational. And unemotional, they could calculate like a computer and have no self-control problems. So, so how does this manifest itself? This this obvious falsehood about the way humans behave. How does this manifest itself in terms of uh, the way economics progresses?
1: Well, take the the problem of saving for retirement. Mm-hmm. It's one one of the biggest financial decisions that we have to make in our lifetime. One is. How much education to get and what type? Mm-hmm. Second is who to marry, and how often. <laughs> and the third is saving for retirement. Uh, throw in buying a house, and you pretty much have the big ones. Right. So, you know that's a piece of cake for econs. And it used to be a piece of cake for my father's generation because there were pensions, and you would work at prudential for your life. And then they would give you an annuity. And retiring was easy.
0: You never had to think about you it. You
1: never had to think about anything. So then, you know, we invent the 401k. And now people have to figure out whether to join, how much to put in, how to invest it, and then how to draw it down, which is a, a whole scary hard problem. Yeah. Sure.
0: And so- the idea of this perf- per- perfectly rational person making all the right choices unemotionally with good self-control and perfectly calculated to their needs, that clearly doesn't exist. It clearly doesn't exist. And notice, if the world was fill of full of people
1: like that, then the 401k is unambiguously a big improvement because it's portable mm-hmm. and you can customize it. And we all know what's best for ourselves. Sure, <laughs>
0: uh, if we're econs. The 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 uh, Dalbar numbers each year show that the average return over the course of thirty years has been about three percent for four hundred one k investors.
1: Yeah, and they have a great tendency to buy high and sell low. They uh, massively got out of equities uh, starting in about two thousand six. And flows didn't turn positive until 2013, during which time the market had doubled.
0: Why is it so challenging to get economists to actually understand people don't behave this way in the real world?
1: Well, let's just say that one of the things that humans have trouble with is the economic concept of sunk costs.
0: I was going through your list of mentors. Pretty much your early mentors are all... Almost all Nobel laureates. Uh, I've been lucky. You know how to pick them. Yeah. You definitely know how to pick them. So before the break, we were discussing sunk costs, and I had asked you, why is it that economists just won't recognize some of the reality of the way humans behave in the real world? And And your answer was? Uh, my answer was... Uh... You
1: know, a a bit cheeky, as I tend to be, which is that economists teach people that they should ignore what they call sunk costs, meaning if that dessert doesn't taste very good, you shouldn't eat it just because you paid 20 bucks for it. And economists have trouble following their own advice. And they had a lot invested in the rational economic model and weren't
0: going to give it up without a fight. Isn't that the nature of so many ideologies that there's all this time and effort there's this endowment effect that it's yours you've done you've done the work you've done the heavy lifting very difficult to just oh this is wrong let me move on and find a new philosophy
1: Yeah that's true and you know I often say that I don't think in 40 years I've changed anybody's
0: mind I disagree with that statement. I know you've said that, but you've actually changed a lot of people's, if not changed their minds, certainly changed their perspectives and enlightened them somewhat. Well, but uh, not not economists.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, the field is growing and uh, there are lots of great people in it, but they're young. Mm-hmm. And so my strategy from the beginning was corrupt the youth. Okay. Don't try to, you know, there's this old line- Science marches Physics. on, funeral by funeral, one funeral at a time. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's no point in trying to convince those guys. But uh, young, impressionable graduate students, you know, you can have your way with them.
0: That's hilarious. So don't even bother convincing the old fogies. Just go right for the kids. Yeah, I, I, it's a it's a good long term strategy. Yeah, I, you know, I was playing a long game. You you have good impulse control. I have to work on that. <laughs> that that's really uh, interesting. So let's move a little more specifically to the efficient market hypothesis. Um, you once said, "I love I love a lot of your quotes." We don't want to throw away the efficient market hypothesis. We just don't want to believe it's true. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So all of
1: behavioral economics and behavioral finance starts with rational models. And they give us a benchmark. And it wouldn't, wouldn't really be possible to do behavioral economics without that rational benchmark. So, you know, the, the efficient market hypothesis really has two components one is that you can't beat the market, mm-hmm. and the other is that prices are right, that asset prices are equal to their intrinsic value. Okay. Now, those are very useful starting points, No hypotheses right? Mm -hmm. And the beauty is that they're testable. And so... Over long periods of time, anyway. Yeah, well, sometimes, like, let's take the prices right. Okay. Here's an amusing story. There is a closed-end mutual fund,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, which, if listeners don't know, these are mutual funds that you have to buy and sell on exchanges, which means that their prices can deviate from the value of the assets they own.
0: As opposed to traditional mutual funds where you can only sell at the end buy or sell at the end of the day and it reflects a calculation of everything that's held within that that bucket. Exactly.
1: Now, the fact that the prices sometimes differ from the value of the assets is already embarrassing, but not as bad <laughs> as the story I'm going to tell you. There's a small closed-end fund that happens to have the ticker symbol CUBA. Cuba. Yeah. Now, needless to say, they don't own any assets in Cuba because, A, it's against the law, and, B, there aren't any. Right. Nevertheless, and for years it was selling at about a 15% discount to its net asset value. Uh-huh. President Obama made his announcement of his intention to ease relations with Cuba. The Cuba fund went to a 70% premium.
0: The next day after the presidential announcement, it was up almost 50%. A week later, it was up 70%. How inefficient is that?
1: Not efficient. And, you know, efficient market defenders will say, oh, look, this is one little tiny example. But, but there are hundreds of those. There are, that's right. And we study these little examples. I call them the fruit flies of finance. <laughs> yeah. Because no one can possibly defend this. It's still... Several months later selling forty percent above really of uh, above net asset value. Here but, I but I Cuba, don't... we're
0: we're opening relations with Cuba. Yeah. Uh, uh, why could you why are you so uh, negative uh, on a closed end fund called Cuba? Yeah, yeah. Just because it has nothing whatsoever to do with Cuba.
1: Yeah. Well, notice that their their <laughs> holdings are public information. Yeah. And you can buy those stocks on your own
0: for a hundred dollars. Why would you pay a hundred and forty? That's unbelievable. Well, markets are not perfectly efficient. They're kind of, sort of, eventually, we'll get around to it efficient. Well,
1: uh, Maybe. maybe. So here's what I would say. The part that you can't beat the market is approximately true.
0: Some people can, on rare occasion. Good luck picking them in advance.
1: That's right. And look, I mean, what we know is most active managers underperform. And that's kind of... The best evidence in favor of the efficient market hypothesis. Mm -hmm.
0: And that's before fees, costs, taxes, turnover. Yeah,
1: it depends on how you do it. But they're they're certainly not beating the market after fees. But although it's the best evidence for the efficient market hypothesis, it's also the most evidence against because where is most of the money? In active funds. Yeah, Vanguard has grown a lot. They're the exception.
0: Yeah. It's and still... there's still a third of their $3 trillion is still actively managed. Right.
1: So so I think it's approximately right. And listeners would be well advised to just say, I can't do
0: it. Is it just inherent in human behavior that we're going to get booms and busts? Markets are going to rally and crash and that's just the way it's going to be?
1: Uh, I think we're subject to that risk, but I think there are things we could do to mitigate it.
0: And let's talk a little bit about choice architecture and nudge, which refers, obviously, to the book you wrote with uh, Cass Sunstein. Yes. So the idea of nudge is that because
1: we're dealing with humans rather than econs, they sometimes need help. And can we think of ways to help them that don't force anybody to do anything? So that was the conceit of the book. In other words, you're not...
0: Mandating anything? No
1: mandates, no bans. Mm-hmm. How much can you do with those restrictions?
0: So now, you're just you're just kind of uh, just kind of nudging uh, is the right word. You're just kind of uh, nudging them uh, right. into the right choice. There's an interesting little bit of behavioral engineering, which is, and I see it here in New York. I come up out of a subway to get to my office because it's the fastest way to get around town, and it's a double escalator. I mean, this thing just goes on forever. And about half the people stand on the escalator and half people walk. But sometimes you get people who don't understand the social norms, and they stand on the left side instead of standing on the right side. I'm in an airport or somewhere in, in, maybe it was Brussels, and I see this escalator. And on the right-hand side are two feet on each step, two, two, two. On the left-hand side is alternates left and right. Yeah. And it made it clear, oh, this is the walking right. half. And that whole issue, you never ran into the person who don't understand the social etiquette. And if you're standing slow traffic, move to the right. right. It was amazing and it was so simple and very effective.
1: Yeah. You know, people have lots of misconceptions about nudge. One is that it has to be sneaky. These notice these things are the opposite of right in your face, right? Look, my favorite nudge, one that I claim has saved my life many times, is in London at street corners. There's a sign at your feet: "Look right," because the cars are coming from the wrong direction. If you're from Europe or America, right? And so you know, many years of looking for cars coming from your left all of a sudden boom so you know there's nothing sneaky about that
0: it's right right there nobody
1: tells you you have to look at it but uh several double-decker buses haven't hit me uh because of that look right so you
0: know i a couple of years ago i wrote this thing for tourists coming to new york city and one of the things was there are many one-way streets but the bicyclists don't have uh any obligation apparently to follow that. So when you step off the curb, look left and right to make sure you don't and let me tell you how many times I've just missed the bicyclist because I happen to look right. It's the same, it's the same exact yeah. thing. So this really is kind of consistent with the philosophy at the University of Chicago, which is really known as a a libertarian, a sort of right-leaning philosophical um, efficient market hypothesis place, are you considered a bit of a heretic there? Because you really don't fit the mold of, of Chicago economists. Yeah, I
1: think heretic would be one of the more polite terms that, <laughs> uh, that I've been called. Uh, you know, we called our philosophy libertarian paternalism.
0: Libertarian paternalism. I'm writing that down.
1: The libertarians were mad that we stole their word. And everybody hates paternalists. They just think of paternalists as Ralph Nader. So, but what we by libertarian we use it as an adjective, and by paternalism we mean helping people achieve their goals, like not getting run over by a bus. So, if we can do that without forcing anybody to do anything, why wouldn't we?
0: Known as the father of behavioral economics, I'm about halfway through the book and I found it to be both informative and amusing, which is an unusual combination. So let's talk a little bit about theory-induced blindness. I know you're going to be seeing uh, your mentor, um, Daniel Kahneman, and you mentioned, um, that's a quote of his, he called theory-induced blindness, the refusal to see facts when it disagrees with a theory or ideology. Some people call that cognitive dissonance. Is there any difference between yeah, those? Uh... No,
1: I no, I think this is a different concept. So uh, the idea is that if you have a certain lens that you look at things through, mm-hmm. then you're gonna see everything to be consistent with your point of view. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like uh, var- people have various views about the economy from the left and from the right, and every you know every time there's a bit of news, they'll find a way of interpreting that piece of news as just confirming what they've
0: always thought. The, where I see that every day is the bull-bear debate that takes place in the media and in print, and no matter what the data point is, the bulls who are long equities are gonna explain why this is good for the markets, and the bears just tried out a counter-argument this is proof that we're all going to die. Uh, it, it's amazing with the same data points how people just focus on right. what justifies. Now, how much of that is selective perception and how much of that is just, you know, we see that which agrees with us yeah, and ignores it, everything yeah, else? Yeah, the
1: psychologists call this confirmation bias. Yes. So we go out looking for evidence that supports our point of view.
0: I mean- But but theories should show, should be 100% of them are trading- At or pretty close to to intrinsic value. That's right. So the fact that you're finding one that's 15% below one day and 70% above, that really shows that, hey, that theory is a little bit off. Yeah, it's what we call an anomaly. Mental accounting. What is mental
1: accounting? So mental accounting is the, think of it as the financial accounting of people,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and Uh, economists tell us that money is fungible. If you want to impress people at a cocktail party, use fungible. Mm -hmm. It just means there's no labels. But of course, people put labels on stuff. You go to the casino, you can see this. A guy wins some money early in the evening. Playing with house money. Exactly. That's the expression. Playing with the house money. What does that mean? The casino is called the house. So it's like you're playing with their money. Well- Suppose you won $500, you put it in your right pocket. You brought $500 to gamble, that's in your left pocket. Both of them will buy something pretty nice if you get home. Right. But the one, the house money, easy come, easy go. And it's entertainment, you're you're just putting that in a different perception. Right. So, you know, that sounds like small potatoes, but during the 1990s technology bubble. Oh sure, during that boom period everybody thought they were playing with the house money. And 401k investors were just increasing and increasing their equity exposure. And at the time, I said one of two things is true. Either they've understood that equities outperform bonds or they think stock prices only go up. Well, the only thing that'll give us an answer is a crash. Fortunately, we got a crash
0: and we got an answer. You know, I've had this conversation with people that this was early in my career, and I remember getting the calls from people who were significantly older than me saying, Hey, I got a ton of profits. I'm rolling a little money out into real estate. I'm picking up that vacation house, or I'm trading up to a a bigger property but they were really the exception. You you it was rational, it made sense. I think most people wish they could go back and buy real estate at 1995 prices. That said, you really didn't see a whole lot of it and anytime people sold at least in the until 2000, they seemed to have uh regretted the sell decision.
1: Yeah, cuz uh, you know, everything was upside down during that period. Mm-hmm. The mo- the most ex- value you know was the, ignored did poorly uh, yeah. buffett
0: did poorly that period yeah
1: all value investors were getting crushed mm-hmm. and you had to just be patient but meanwhile
0: your neighbors were getting rich it was hard to do so so why do why is it this mental accounting why do we love bargains so much you tell one of the anomaly stories about when jc Pennies decided to get rid of the fake prices with the artificial markdowns and just have one price and it was a disaster yeah people like deals even if they know it's nonsense
1: yeah and you know even rich guys like deals mhm y- you know there are plenty of rich guys traveling in december to get their 1k on you know uh, uh to get more miles mm-hmm. and
0: to um so, in order to hit the next break point uh, and get all these free miles for free, right. free trips.
1: And, you know, you, you go to Costco, the big discount retailer, you see a, a parking lot full of fancy Mercedes SUVs.
0: We, my wife pointed out we went to Target a few weekends ago, and there is this Rolls Royce Wraith in the parking lot, yeah, which is go. a $350,000 car at Target. I guess he needed a lot of toilet yeah, paper.
1: Yeah. I used to tease my father, who was driving around in a fancy BMW looking for the cheapest price for gas. And I said, (laughs) you know, Dad, how much gas are you using to find the cheapest price? But he had to find the cheapest
0: price. So you had mentioned casinos earlier. Um, Twain once called gambling a tax on the stupid. Do you agree or disagree with that?
1: You know, I— um, I think it's uh, mostly right. Um, you why know, do we? Why do people love gambling? They like the thrill, you know. And there are some things like horse racing, would be unbelievably boring if you didn't have some action. Right. And of course, the betting is irrational because the rate of return is minus seventeen percent per
0: twenty minutes, because that's the take. Right. So, um, it's funny you say that we. So I'm on a cruise with my my wife, and we're walking through the casino to get to the other side of the ship and we just walk by one of the tables. and I notice, because I have a bit of a uh, I have a, a head for math, I say to her, notice that this pays two to one, but you have three chances to lose and that pays three to one and you have four chances to lose. And it was a roulette table. And I go, look at all the odds. The odds are relatively bad relative to the risk. And she teaches fashion illustration and design. So she's a visual person. And she says, I don't know about that, but they certainly seem to be sweeping up a whole lot more chips than they're handing out each each role. And I'm like, oh, well, that's the other way to, uh, to look at it. And yet people sit at the tables and play for hours and hours. So I'll give you my
1: favorite recent mental accounting story, which is in the- early days of the financial crisis the price of gasoline fell by 50 percent mm-hmm. what did people do remember everybody was belt tightening on all fronts except one people were splurging on premium gas on premium gas premium gas uh-huh. because they have a gas budget and they had been paying 100 bucks a week to fill up the tank and now it was only 50. And they're thinking, oh well, gas is cheap. All right, I'll splurge on buy premium every once in a
0: while. What what of the fact that unless you have an engine designed for premium gas, that extra octane just goes out the tailpipe. You know, uh, there's a lot
1: of money left in the gas budget. So,
0: <laughs> so just buy premium gas just for you the know. Heck it's of completely
1: it. stupid, but you know, <laughs> what, uh, what can you do?
0: So let's talk a little bit about self control. That's another chapter in the book. That's another one of your favorite topics. People really seem to lack all manner of self-control. How does that manifest itself economically?
1: Well, you know, we talked about saving. Not especially,
0: uh, United States, not a especially high saving rate. Uh, you know, we went through a decade where we had
1: negative saving rates. And, you know, this is the place, the domain where behavioral economists have had their biggest impact. Mm-hmm. And we've managed to change the way most 401k plans work uh, with
0: two small changes. One, automatic enrollment. So you start a new job at a company that has a 401k, and you're automatically enrolled in the program.
1: Unless you opt out, you have to fill out a form not to join. Mm -hmm. And that raised enrollment in the first year from about 50% to 85%.
0: Huge, huge difference.
1: And a completely trivial change.
0: And what was the, in the last 30 seconds, what was the other- uh, The other
1: one is what I call save more tomorrow, mm-hmm. which is get people to agree to increase their saving rates every time they get a raise.
0: And that has an impact and therefore they're contributing more. Yep. We've been speaking with Professor Richard Thaler of the University of Chicago, author of the book, Misbehaving. Um The history and making of behavioral economics. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure and check out our continuing chat, which you can find on bloomberg.com and on Apple iTunes. Uh, Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com and follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. This is our Podcast portion where only you folks lucky enough to go to SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com or iTunes, I don't have to tell you. If you're listening to this, you already have found the podcast portion, and we just kind of take our earpieces out and relax and and have some fun. Um, I didn't get to mention uh, some of your curriculum vitae, and I know you said it's way too long, but you do something with Professor Bob Schiller that's kind of interesting, you guys are the you are the co-director of the behavioral economics project at National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, Professor Schiller is your co-director, is that right? Yep. Yeah, we've been doing this for I think over 25 years. Really? So, here's what I find fascinating and and there are amazing parallels. So, Bob Schiller is also a behavioralist. He he thinks people make mistakes, markets get crazy. We have bubbles. We have crashes. One of his very best friends is Wharton professor Jeremy Siegel. Couldn't be more opposite philosophically than than Professor Schiller. He stocks for the long run. Oh, we can never, you know, let's not worry about this. If you're thinking long term, you have to be long equities. Bob is, uh, you know, things look a little pricey. Here's my Schiller cape. And then I look at you. And you're at University of Chicago, you're the father of behavioral economics, and your golf buddy is Eugene Fama, who couldn't be more opposite in terms of philosophy than you are. How how did that relationship develop?
1: You know, when I first arrived at the University of Chicago, uh, a reporter asked uh, a couple of distinguished financial economists why they had allowed this to happen. This, this heretic to show yeah one uh i'll make you read the book to find out who said he didn't block it because each generation has to make their own mistakes
0: that's hilarious
1: a very warm welcome to a new <laughs> colleague gene said oh we hired him because we wanted to be him um uh, we wanted him nearby so we could keep an eye on him
0: that's very funny also
1: yeah. So but a little nicer.
0: Right. And and a little
1: tongue in cheek. A little You know, t- you know he was yeah.
0: half joking, half serious.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And uh you know, Gene Gene what Gene says is and I I agree with this, that he and I agree about almost all the facts. Mm-hmm. We disagree about the interpretations.
0: Yeah, but you agree that there are bubbles. He sort of has ducked that question. Yeah. What's that,
1: a bubble? What's a bubble? Right. Look, but what's his real objection is that we can't predict when a bubble going to end, which is true. Okay.
0: And, you Although know, Bob has had a pretty good run of luck uh, with it.
1: No, no. You know, look, Bob is my buddy for 25 years, but he was warning. Uh, When did he give the speech to Alan Greenspan? 96. 96.
0: Yep. Four years early. But he wasn't saying it's a bubble get out. He was saying, hey, things have gone. Uh, Well, you know, but. Kind of what we've been hearing the past few years here. Yeah,
1: but like 98. Yeah. You know, he was, uh, his hair was on fire. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, 2000, you know, so. Um, and the, my
0: selective perception and confirmation bias is that I only saw the 2001 and I ignored the earlier. Well, you but know, I do remember the 96. He's the one who planted irrational exuberance in exactly, in Greenspan's and, then,
1: and then Greenspan gave him that phrase, which Bob never used mm-hmm. um, in and, that speech, and, in the, in, and he turned it into a best-selling book, mm-hmm. which happened to come out in 2000. Which was lucky. Good timing. Yeah. Right. Good timing. Well, he was
0: pretty dead on with the housing.
1: Well, again, you know <laughs> again, he started warning mm-hmm. that house prices are looking pretty scary, especially in places like Vegas and Scottsdale, but they kept going up for a couple more years. Right. So so Gene's right that calling tops and bottoms, there's nobody who's good at that. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, I think it was pretty obvious in both of those cases Mm -hmm. that there was a bubble going on. But, you know, I thought Amazon was ridiculously priced in 1998. And, you know, it was. Some people would argue it was. Yeah. And, but I had a guy in my class. Mm -hmm. I was teaching a PhD class in behavioral finance. Mm -hmm. And I said, Amazon, who buys this? And there's a guy who raises his hand. And he bought it at the IPO. Oh, come on. And he says- Still long it? Still holding on to it? Well, uh, this is 98, so it wasn't Uh that old. And
0: So is he still holding on to it today? I I don't know.
1: (laughs) I I don't know. But um, so each week in class, you know, I'm teasing him about this. And each week in class, he's getting richer. It
0: just goes up and and up. You
1: know, at the end of the quarter, I gave him an A. I said, What the
0: hell? He knows more than me. You know? People forget that in 1998, the NASDAQ was up 85%, and in 99, it more than doubled. It was up more than 100%. And that's just, you could throw a dart at any tech stock and you're making. Crazy money. Of course, you subsequently ended up with an eighty percent, not too far off from the twenty nine crash, an eighty percent um, subsequent debacle starting in March two thousand. But uh, Amazon is one of the survivors. It's yeah, still still yeah. making uh, money. The the example I always give people when they say, imagine if you bought the IPO of Amazon or or Apple, and my answer is always, how many of the original IPO holders of Apple do you think are still long Apple that that people buy it and then they can't they're afraid of oh my god i'm going to lose we'll talk a little bit about um prospect theory and about why people seem to hate losses so much more than they like gains in a little while but how many people who bought apple even 15 years ago are still long it today
1: yeah well it's very hard people have a tendency to get rid of their winners too quickly and to hold on to their losers too long
0: and that's the exact opposite. I started as a trader in this business. It's the exact opposite. You have to let the winners winners run. You
1: got to let them run, and uh, but and you got to be willing to admit you made a mistake, and you started to get into loss aversion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Lots of evidence shows that losses hurt about twice as much as gains feel good.
0: So I have to ask why. I, I have my own pet theory, which is very. Esoteric. I'm really curious as to why you think what why that is that losses hurt twice. I think as much we're as just
1: hardwired that way. Amos Tversky, one of my psychology mentors, had a joke that there once were species mm-hmm. that didn't exhibit loss aversion and they're now extinct. <laughs> right. So if you're right near subsistence, mm-hmm. it makes really good sense to be loss averse. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, for those of us who, if we lose $2,000, we're not going to fail to make our mortgage payment right. or stop eating, uh, it, it no longer, you know, the the evolutionary cycle is very slow. Mm-hmm. And so it made sense to be loss averse when losing something meant you starved to death. Right. but But now- you know, people do stupid things like buy extended warranties. Right, twenty-seven billion dollar a year. That's amazing industry, and most of it is for stuff that is just Dis-
0: it's disposable. Yeah, they, they, I forgot what. Even the last washing machine we just bought a washing machine. We moved in September, November, October. We bought a washer and a dryer, and they were nice, but they weren't you know crazy expensive. And they start pitching you in the washer. I'm going to throw that. That breaks. You're going to fix it. And if you don't fix it, I'm throwing it away and I'm buying a new one. I'm, I'm not going to. Why do I need to spend more money on the possibility of it, this breaking? You know what people have to think
1: about is they're making money selling you that policy, right? And the salesman at the especially is making money. Is
0: making money. That means you're losing money. They're making more money. In college, I worked part-time in an electronics store. And they would make more money on the extended warranties than they would make on the products. So here's an example of mental accounting. What people should do
1: is say, every time somebody offers me an extended warranty, mm-hmm. I'm going to take that money and put it into a special savings account. Right. And then anytime anything goes it's wrong, your repair fund. Yeah, I had a I had a friend at at Cornell, who had he, here was his mental accounting trick. At the beginning of the year, he would set aside money for the United Way. Mm-hmm. Say five grand, he's going to give. Right. Then anything bad happens to him, he deducts it from what he's going to give to the United Way. Right. Nothing. So he was totally insured.
0: So he had had an insurance policy, and at the end, if he had a good year, United Way got five grand. Yeah. That's funny.
1: You know, a speeding ticket? No problem. Comes out of United Way. (laughs) You know, and one year, the roof blew off his vacation home in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I told him, look, the reason why you weren't covered is you're too cheap to give United Way enough money to cover the roof.
0: right that's that's unbelievable. So in other words, he
1: didn't have the homeowners insurance. No, he had insurance but you know uh, he didn't have insurance for the deductible
0: <laughs> that that's that's pretty fascinating the, his uh, mental
1: accounting insurance.
0: So let me keep working my way. So my my pet theory on on why people hate losses more than they like gains, gains represent a temporary increase in your standard of living. It's temporary. yeah and we all know behaviorists have taught us, hey, you go out and buy a bigger car or a bigger house or a nicer television or whatever, and six months later, that just becomes your benchmark, your frame of reference. And whatever benefits accrue to that, um, for the most part, don't really, most people don't feel. I'm an exception with cars, and I could tell you my wife's car, every time I drive this, we've had this for two years, it's an utter thrill. The car I forced her to get... um, it's just this little rocket ship, and it's a delight. Other than getting pulled over for speeding tickets, it's a delight. And I, I'm aware as I'm doing this, I'm like, you know, it's two years, and I, the thrill is not yet gone. But I know that it's about six months for for most, most people. For most
1: things. And so you're on to a basic fact of life, which is that we adapt to our surroundings. Mm-hmm. and To the upside and the downside. Yeah. I mean- Look, when you're a grad student, you don't feel poor because you're living with a bunch of other grad students. Right. And, you know, you've all got secondhand furniture and- Macaroni and cheese. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's temporary. And now, you know, if we had to go back to living like that- Oh, terrible. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, we were happy then. Sure, Sure. So, you know, that- and. So that's the first basic fact of human nature. And then the second is that improvements make us happy, but decrements make us
0: miserable. Right. So, so that's so here, loss aversion. So, so the loss aversion thesis. So not only are the gains temporary, but and, – and this sort of traces back to what you said about people on the edge. When you lose money in that mental accounting that we do, that loss of – The average salary in the United States is about $50,000. You lose $1,000. That means that a week of your life is gone and you have nothing to show for it. You work that week, you got $1,000, you lose it. That's a significant loss. It's a permanent loss versus the benefit, the temporary, hey, here's $1,000. You could buy some nice stuff. You could do things, but it's only temporary. I mean, that's the only way I've been able to rationalize why we despise the losses so much more than we enjoy the gains? You know,
1: I, I'm not much for evolutionary stories, but this one I think is just—we're just hardwired that mm-hmm. way. And uh, maybe in another fifty thousand years, we'll get over it. But uh, not, a, not anytime
0: soon. There's a book I'm—I'm I'm almost done reading. I actually put it down to start yours called Last Ape Standing, and it looks at the past 10 million years, and that there were approximately 30 species of either human-like or near-human, and how the the way they've evolved led to some to thrive and some to not make mm-hmm. it, and we happen to be the last ape standing. And it's a lot of the decision-making that, that we see today, a lot of these, what you mention is hardwired. Well, sometimes the, the hardwiring sends you down the wrong path, and- right. Hey, you ain't around anymore.
1: Well, and, you know, we got hardwired to win that battle with the other sapiens, and
0: uh, it
1: came, you know, there were pros and cons. We all have bad backs,
0: you know? (laughs) That'll teach you to walk upright for a few hundred thousand years, to to say the least. Let's talk a little bit about the winner's curse. We kind of skipped over that earlier. What exactly is the winner's curse? The idea of the Winner's
1: Curse, this was discovered actually by a couple of engineers at Arco. Arco is? Arco. Oh, the, the old, oil company. Old, sure. old oil company. Atlanta, Richmond, uh, oil Yeah, company. exactly. Atlanta, Richfield. Richfield, uh, that's right. right. So what? They, here's what they discovered. They discovered that er, when they were bidding for oil leases, mm-hmm. uh, every time they won a lease, there was- less oil in the ground than they expected. Not every time, but on average. Now, they had pretty good geologists, Mm -hmm. and they couldn't figure out why they were so unlucky. And then they had the insight. Well, there's a reason we won the auction. Paid too much. We paid too much. (laughs) So, and the lesson is, the more bidders there are, Mm -hmm. the more likely it is that if you win the auction, you lost
0: that's really interesting so if there's something that you want that you're bidding at auction for you should bid a moderate price and either you get lucky and you pay that under price or if you get enthusiastic and bid too much that's a that's a losing situation
1: yeah and live auctions have a way people get carried away
0: they certainly do the, the
1: only way to rationally participate in an auction is to submit your bid And be done with it. And, yeah, and walk away.
0: So figure out the intrinsic value, apply a reasonable discount, submit that in writing, and just find out the next day, did I win or not?
1: Right. Because if you go in person, you're
0: doomed. A friend of mine dragged me to an antique watch auction that took place in in uptown in in Manhattan, from where we are. Yeah, it's still uptown from here. And I looked at all these, and they come out with the white gloves, and they bring... This watch is four thousand dollars and this watch is ninety thousand dollars and this watch is five hundred thousand it's was just insane. That's a whole different universe of, of collectibles. And I watched online the auction go off and there were some things I thought were really interesting and I hadn't the slightest idea of I would love to pay, you know, steal that for twenty percent below. But auctions are pretty good at getting people at the very least to bid fair value and most of the time to bid above. And then there's the hammer cost on
1: top of it. Well, that's right. But a a colleague of mine at Chicago Booth called Devin Pope has studied uh, the auctioneers. Mm -hmm. It turns out that there are are good and bad auctioneers. Not surprising. But again, in a world of e-cons, it wouldn't be true because we would all bid – Up to our reservation price and stop.
0: So, what is it that the good auctioneers are getting people to do that Uh, the bad are not? Yeah, I I don't remember the details. Other than bidding above far uh, above that reserve price, just
1: uh, all I all the headline of the is they're different. Just like there are good baseball pitchers and bad ones, Mm -hmm. there are good auctioneers and bad ones. And the only reason that would only be surprising if
0: you're an economist. Right, because there shouldn't be. There should be it, 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 only good, because so much money getting passed. You know, it's it, it there's it should, a huge incentive to get a good auctioneer. Right. If if you're the one and running
1: the auction, you know, if you've ever gone to like a charity auction, mm-hmm. if there's a good auctioneer, they raise a lot of money. Really. Then you know they they just they just have their ways. Of uh, people
0: get emotionally excited. They get into it. Right, it's fairly enthusiastic.
1: Right. right. And then they'll there's a, a good trick, which is they'll have two people bidding mm-hmm. on like a week in some villa in Italy, and uh, one bids twenty grand, and the other wins it at twenty one, and the, the twenty grand guy finally says, Oh know, uncle. Right. and then he says, "Okay, I happen to have a second week," and then he sells the second week to the. Twenty grand guy. Oh, that's amazing!
0: And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of skill in that. So, let's talk a bit about these biases that are so challenging to overcome. Why is it that uh, are we just creatures of habit? Is it the way we're wired? Why do people find these inherent issues so challenging to to circumvent?
1: You know, again, I mean, it's you know, it, it's like asking why do we have bad backs um you know or why why we can't run as fast as uh usain bolt uh we're built that way right and you know in many domains we recognize it so you know if my wife sends me to the store to uh to pick up some groceries if there are more than two items i need a list <laughs> You know, I uh, you know I understand my memory.
0: My wife hasn't figured that out yet. You know, she's like, "Where's the juice?" Yeah, oh, I forgot uh, the you juice. You know,
1: you know. So we all understand at some level. Mm-hmm. You know, we set alarm clocks if we have to get up early in the morning, and so we're not perfect. And it's just silly to think that we are perfect. And you know, as you mentioned earlier in the show, the there there's nothing wrong with theories that assume everyone's perfect. The only thing that's wrong is in believing that those theories are true. So, you know, Greenspan was convinced there couldn't be a technology bubble because asset prices are equal to their intrinsic value. They're rational, of course. And, you know, meanwhile, companies are selling for 100 times sales and they're computing that because there are no profits and, you know, We're all looking at this and saying, this is completely crazy, but then the market goes up another 50%, and you start to wonder, maybe this time is different. What am I missing? Yeah, yeah. I'm
0: not seeing that they are. Although he did do a mea culpa post-financial crisis. He did
1: do a mea culpa. That's right.
0: Um, He believed that reputation would have prevented banks from doing the really dumb things they did. You know what bank is going to risk a hundred and fifty-eight year reputation as Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and everybody else did, and now they're no longer.
1: Yeah, and I think in a lot of that, a lot of the companies, there's something I talk about in the book is, uh, you know, economists have this uh, a theory they call agency theory about mm-hmm. principles and agents. Sure. And the idea is usually that principle is the owner. So the shareholders, the uh, the shareholders or, you know, Bloomberg, it would be Mr. Bloomberg. Right. Right. So he would be the principal. And uh, then, you know, he's got guys like you working for him Mm -hmm. and or shirking. That's the kind of and the, the usual idea is that things go wrong because the agent, the employee, isn't doing their job. Right. I think in a lot of cases, it's what I call a dumb principal problem. Right. So, you know, let's take the banks that were paying mortgage brokers two grand a pop to sell mortgages without any documentation. Now, I'm not blaming the mortgage broker. Mm-hmm. That's what he's getting paid to do.
0: I'll I'll take it a step further. Those mortgages had a warranty on them that was often ninety days, three months. So you're selling a 30-year mortgage, you've basically told this mortgage broker, "Go find me someone who's going to at least make the first 3 right first 3 out of 360 payments." Go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Crazy. So, right. So, you know, dumb principle. I, dumb principle. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think in a lot of cases uh, you know, if we think of the big catastrophes like Bearings and mm-hmm. uh Barclays and Um, what we had were CEOs who didn't understand what the people that were working for them were doing.
0: That's a dumb principle problem. Yeah, it's a dumb principle problem. That's fascinating. So we've talked about finance. We've talked about how irrational people can be in the markets. Let's talk about fairness, where people and fairness games, where people are willing to give up benefit to themselves- even if they think something is, because they think something is not fair.
1: Yeah. A classic experiment is something called the ultimatum game. hmm So um, let's say uh, the experimenter gives me $100, and he tells me to make you an offer of some share of the 100 And the rules are either you take it and, you get what I offer you or you say no, in which case we both get nothing.
0: So it's it's an all or nothing situation.
1: It's, uh, ultimatum. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called the ultimatum game.
0: Now, let's
1: suppose I offer you $2 out of my 100
0: Mm-hmm. Well. I don't need $2. You're keeping 98. The hell with you. Go jump. Right.
1: So what we find is in that game, if you offer less than about 20%, percent hmm you're likely to get turned down. That's
0: amazing. And why is that? Because to this person making that decision, it's free money.
1: It's free money. It's. Uh, but, you know, they say, uh, the hell uh, the hell with you. I mean, that's not fair. And, um, you, you know, uh, my friend Danny Kahneman and I did a study way back in 1984, 85. Uh, what pisses people off? Right. Uh, Well, the more polite term was uh, what people think is fair. Right. And we had an example there's a blizzard. A hardware store has been selling snow shovels for $15. They raised the price to $20 the morning after a blizzard. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Well, people hated it.
0: Right. You know, they
1: all hated it.
0: Price gouging. Yeah, right. Exactly.
1: Now, think about Uber. Right. They do surge pricing. Surge pricing. Now, at some level, surge pricing makes total sense. You know, Greater
0: demand, finite supply, prices go right. up.
1: We're all used to the fact that if you want to buy an airline ticket at Christmas and a hotel room in Aspen, you're going to pay more of course. than two weeks earlier. They, they even call that, hey, it's high season. It's prime season. Right. But you do it in a blizzard. Mm-hmm. You're gonna make people mad. Ga- well, you're gouging. You're, you're gouging. Taking advantage. Think of the the, the very word gouging. Mm-hmm. The literal means poke a hole, right. and that's the way people feel. So m- my opinion about Uber is that they should cap the
0: surge, and to so uh, sort of reduce animus and 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 right and, maintain a reputation. Uh,
1: yeah, and. And it makes sense because they're fighting a political battle in every city as to whether they can operate and right. whether they can go to the airport. They can't afford to be making people mad.
0: Uh, at, at least not in the beginning.
1: A- and, you know, there's it, it never makes sense to make people mad. I mean, you're in this for the long run. There, most businesses have learned this. So after a hurricane mm-hmm. down in Florida, the
0: cheapest place to buy plywood, Walmart is Walmart in Florida. They're notorious for anticipating weather and shipping extra whatever it is, extra plywood, whatever is needed if and it generates a lot of goodwill a lot of goodwill. Now there will also be a guy in
1: Atlanta, Who will load up his truck with plywood, Mm -hmm. sell it off the back of the truck for market price. Mm -hmm. Both Walmart and that guy are being rational.
0: Walmart's playing the long game, and that guy is just doing a one-off. Hey, it's not my reputation, not my business in Florida. I'm selling this plywood and going back to Atlanta. Right.
1: So, you know- We've all had the experience in New York. It's raining. Cabs you, disappear. C- boom. Cabs disappear. Some guy in a black car pulls up. 20 bucks. 20 bucks, 20, right? Yeah. And you know you pay.
0: <laughs> Unless you want to get wet.
1: Unless you want to get wet. But uh, if, if a cab driver pulled up, and let's say it's a $6 fare normally, mm-hmm. and he says it's raining, it'll be 20 bucks, you're going to write down his... Tag You're gonna number. be
0: very, very unhappy, right? But you put up with it from Uber because it's a different choice. It's a third option. It's
1: a third option, but I think they could uh, they could do better.
0: So let me ask you some of my favorite questions that that I ask all of my guests. These are these are some regular ones. Let's start with an easy one. What are some of your favorite books? And and they can, but don't have to be economic books. What books do you really have? You really enjoyed maybe my favorite book of all time is catch twenty two I love Joseph Heller that book was just that, it's I a read that in college book. and just that's some catch that catch twenty
1: two it, yeah it's a fantastic catch here's a weird thing it's not on Kindle
0: that's funny because it's I, I'm surprised I've been, about I've, been that. I've been meaning to reread it It's re, it sold something like twenty eight million copies right, right I wonder if the estate has not is the reason why it was published pre-kindle so there's no yeah. obligation right. for it to show right. up that way. Right, right, um, right. Like, if you like Heller, were you a Vonnegut fan at all? Yeah, I love Vonnegut. So fantastic. Uh, Catch. Um, so the two big ones, Slaughterhouse-Five, always comes up every time um, Catch-22 comes up. But a few of his other ones were just, Cat's Cradle is just so yeah, good.
1: You know, there's a book that uh, that many people know that I read because I was there, About called Galapagos.
0: Galapagos. I
1: think that's the title. Maybe it's not the title, but it's a book that takes place Uh there. A uh, Vonnegut book? A Vonnegut book.
0: I'll have to check. The the Galapagos book that's in the back of my head, Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he did a book called Last Chance to See. And he talked about, by the way, you want to go see, this is not going to be here for another 100 years, if you want to go see this, go take a look. If you want to go see that, go go take a look. So here's another book,
1: and this is a book I went back and reread while I was writing my book. Mm-hmm. And it's Richard Feynman's Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Mr. Feynman. Yeah,
0: that, It's on audio now also. You could get the versions of him narrating some of his speeches and some oh, of his really? stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, his stuff is wonderful. It, I
1: mean, so... In some ways, writing this book wasn't my final act of misbehaving. Mm -hmm. You know, the title technically refers to the fact that people misbehave according to economists. Right. But a second meaning is that by pointing that out during my career, I was misbehaving.
0: Well, you didn't conform to what the norms they were expecting you to Conform to. And then the third act was writing the book
1: the way I did. Mm-hmm. Because my publisher assured me that there's no
0: market for a book like this. Right. They're very bad at predicting these sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. But that's true in television and film. And, right. You know, that's uh, the famous William Goldman line, nobody knows anything, talking about Hollywood, that they would make these. If it was up to them, they would just make sequels of what was originally successful and— but you got to at least try something to see what's going to be successful.
1: Right. So Feynman's book you 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 know you've read it. It's a bunch of stories uh and some of them are very funny.
0: He's a funny guy. Was a funny
1: and, guy? And uh but but there's no physics. So the book I wanted to write is as it would be if Feynman had tried to explain physics uh-huh. in that book got it that makes sense I don't know sense. whether you think I achieved that but that was what I was trying to do
0: so let me ask you the the my next question is what sort of advice would you give to a young economic student or a millennial either just entering grad school or just starting their career today find your own problem to work on your don't, own problem yeah don't
1: don't be your advisor's research assistant and it may cost you a year. Mm-hmm. Um because it's the easy thing to do is do a variation on your advisor's life work. And uh that doesn't yeah, put you in good standing for the rest well, of your career. Well, you know, I think you know, the the my book starts out with uh, this story about Daniel Kahneman. Uh-huh. Uh Having a an interview with Roger Lowenstein, the guy who wrote "When Genius Which Failed," I love another great book. book absolutely. Right,
0: and I just had lunch with him not too long. He, he's so insightful, Roger.
1: Yeah, he's a great guy. So, the the story is that Roger was writing a a piece about me for the New York Times Magazine.
0: You were in the room while while um, Danny was actually having the conversation. Right.
1: So Danny said, "Do you want to stay for this?" And uh, I said, sure. And then he starts explaining uh, to Roger, Thaler's best quality, what really makes him special, is that he's lazy.
0: <laughs>
1: and I'm, I'm waving my hands in the air and shaking my head and saying, you know, uh, come on. I admit to being lazy, but is it my best quality?
0: And uh, Danny uh, still... Sticks to that story. I I love that. That's a great story. Professor Thaler, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, We're going to wrap right here. I know you have a place to go to from here, and I will see you uh, on the radio tomorrow. Uh, For those of you who are listening, we've been having a conversation with Professor Richard Thaler of the University of Chicago. Be sure and check out some of our other uh, podcasts. You can look an inch up or an inch down and end up uh, checking them out. Check out Professor Thaler's Twitter handle at r underscore Thaler at Twitter. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.